Sinners faced with their sin often have one of two reactions. Either despair, I'm too far gone, it's hopeless, we're overwhelmed with our sin and our brokenness. Or two, we resort to self-righteousness. We try to ignore or explain away our sin. We pretend that it's not actually there or it's not actually all that bad. And maybe you find yourself tending to one of those or maybe even a combination of those responses. Neither one of them, though, ends up satisfying. Because either we are honest with ourselves about how broken we are, but we are left with no hope, or we're dishonest with ourselves in order to maintain some sort of false hope. As we'll see in today's passage, though, Christ offers us an escape from these two dead ends. He allows us to be completely honest with ourselves about how broken we are, and precisely in so doing, to find hope. Our passage today is the second in a series of challenges from religious leaders against Jesus where they ask this, there's this repeated word that introduces their challenges, why, 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 why? Why does Jesus speak like that, declaring people's sins forgiven? Or why do Jesus' disciples not fast like other people do? Or why do they do what is deemed unlawful on the Sabbath? Here, why does Jesus fellowship with sinners, even calling them to follow him as disciples? And each of these challenges, these accounts, are meant to, Mark includes them, to expose and showcase Jesus' identity to us. We get to learn something about who Jesus is and what his mission is. In our passage today, as Char read it, you'll see it was broken up really into two scenes that showcase Jesus' mission of pursuing sinners. The first scene, verses 13 to 14, Jesus calls a sinner, Levi, the tax collector. In the second scene, verses 15 to 17, Jesus has table fellowship with sinners. He calls and then he fellowships. Or in the first scene, we get a particular example, a vignette of Jesus pursuing sinners, Levi. And in the second scene, Jesus provides a defense of that mission against its challengers. He gives this proverb of being a physician, coming for those who are sick. And so we can summarize today's passage this way. What Mark is trying to get across to us and God through Mark here is that Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but for those who know that they are sick. Jesus has come specifically, not for those who think they are well, but for those who know that they are sick with sin. And so I want to help us uh, experience the story of today's passage and its message by introducing two characters. One is a real character, but I'll be uh, presenting his perspective. This is Levi, his perspective in a way that maybe we could imagine him uh, experience his call as a disciple. And then it will later look at a, uh, a fictional character that I think represents someone in the story. So first, I'd like us to meet Levi. Hi, my name is Levi. You might also 
know me by my other name, which is Matthew. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the day when Jesus called me to be one of his disciples. Now, I was a tax collector living in the town of Capernaum. And I don't know if you know much about tax collectors in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't exactly uh, like your IRS as you have it today. The whole system of tax collecting was rife with corruption. We made our living by agreeing to collect money for Rome, bidding to collect money on their behalf, but then extracting above and beyond that to keep the difference for ourselves. And so extortion was rampant in my profession. More than that, I was effectively a traitor to my own people. I wasn't proud of it, but I saw an opportunity to make good money and I took it. Basically, I did this although at the expense of my own people, of my fellow Jews. I made wealth by agreeing to become a henchman for the Roman Empire doing their bidding. Needless to say, we tax collectors were not well-liked by our fellow Jews. Not only were we corrupt, effectively stealing from our own people, but our presence served as a tangible reminder of Rome's domination, their occupation over us. In fact, we were so despised that Jewish oral law, the Mishnah and elsewhere, it at times said that any Jew who collected taxes for Rome was disqualified from serving as a judge or even a witness in court. We were automatically expelled from synagogue life, deemed as a public disgrace to our families. If we even touched or walked into a house, it was said that our presence made it ritually unclean. Our fellow Jews were forbidden to receive money or alms from us since the money acquired was deemed robbery. Oral law permitted Jews to lie to us in order to protect themselves from tax collectors like me since we were essentially stealing money from them as they saw it. We belong to a class of people known as the sinners. You'll notice that's how Jesus describes us in this passage that Mark wrote for you. In verse 16, it says that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. In other words, the sinners were people who were publicly known to be living in a lifestyle that was not Torah observant. We willingly embraced lifestyles that didn't follow God's law. These would be people like thieves and murderers, prostitutes, and tax collectors. People had nothing to do with us. They were, in fact, to keep separate from us. In the account of Jesus' life that I wrote in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18 there, I record Jesus explaining church discipline and what it looks like to remove someone out of the church. And Jesus told us that when you remove someone out of the church, you are to treat them as, you may remember, a Gentile, that is someone who's not a part of the people of God, or a tax collector, someone you're supposed to separate from. Jesus can say this because everyone would have understood what it meant to treat someone as a tax collector. People that you separated from. That's how we were treated. That was the life that I chose for myself. Now, I knew who Jesus was. His fame had been spreading all across the region. But as he came performing miracles, 
of the kingdom and announcing the arrival of God's kingdom, I thought, how could that kingdom, God's saving reign, how could that possibly be for me a tax collector? I assumed I was too far gone. But one day, as Jesus was traveling through Capernaum, he came right by my toll booth where I took taxes. And as he passed by, he stopped and he looked me right in the eyes and he spoke to me. No one else wanted anything to do with, with me, let alone to actually address me and to speak to me. And not only that, but when he spoke, what he said was this, follow me. He made me one of his disciples, in other words, someone who followed him, me, a tax collector. Later, Jesus even came to my house and he ate with me along with other tax collectors and known sinners who were following him. As the kingdom of God dawned, who were expected to be among its citizens? Who were expected to receive invitations to the messianic banquet? Certainly not folks like me, but here we were, myself and others, banqueting with that very Messiah. And as he explained, this was no accident. In fact, this is the very reason he came, he explained. He came for people like us to invite us to the banquet of God's salvation. As he explained to us and those around, he said, as, as you have written here in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who receive the salvation of Jesus are not those who presume to have earned it, who have presumed to have earned it, those who see themselves as righteous and deserving. But rather, it is precisely those who recognize they don't deserve it those who recognize their need. Second, I'd like us to meet a fictional person that I've named Mordecai, who, although not mentioned in the story, I think represents maybe what one of the Pharisees would have been experiencing in this account as we read it. Hi, my name is Mordecai, and I'm a scribe from the party the religious party known as the Pharisees. You may have heard of us. Now, I'm one of the scribes, and scribes, we were experts in the law. We made copies of the law. Our profession was to, to know the law inside and out. Not only the written law, the Torah, or as you call the Mosaic law, but also the oral law. We, there was traditions developed of, of additional laws beyond even what scripture itself mandated to create something of offense to keep us from getting any, any, anywhere close to violating God's law. As a Pharisee, I was one of those who was obsessed with keeping moral and ritual purity. If you know anything about our history as the Jewish people, Throughout much of what you call the Old Testament, our Hebrew Bible, we did not follow God's law. In fact, there were times where we actually lost his law. We pursued idols, and eventually we experienced the curses of the covenant that God made with us. We went into exile. 
When God finally returned us to our land, myself and those like me were convinced to do everything in our power to keep that from ever happening again. So we shifted from idolatry to obsessive adherence to the law. I get the sense that sometimes in your circles today, you get a bad rap. We get a bad rap with some of you. You think of us as sort of these curmudgeon ornery, grumpy religious folks. Well, let me assure you, we were conservative, as you might say, Bible-believing people. We simply wanted to do what God's law said. We simply wanted to live holy lives. And we wanted the community around us. We wanted the Jewish people to follow God's law as he had commanded it to us. And so when this Jesus, who was an increasingly well-respected rabbi among the people, started having table fellowship with the likes of tax collectors and sinners, people who clearly did not observe Torah, people who rejected their own community, the very people who got us into the mess of exile in the first place. How can this rabbi embrace those people? Of course we lost it. He's a rabbi. He should be teaching people to follow God's law, not break it, not embrace sinners. And I don't know if you know anything about table fellowship. I know even in your time, it seems that when you eat meals with people, that's seen as significant and meaningful. But especially in the ancient world where I lived, we viewed eating meals with someone as expressing an intimate association with them, something of a partnership with them. So to eat with tax collectors and other known sinners? Moreover, as Jews, we have very strict dietary standards meant to keep us from eating anything that would be deemed unclean. And so, of course, we would never eat with a defiled and sinful tax collector, let alone even go into his house. Who does this Jesus think he is? Calling tax collectors to be his disciples and eating with them. You see, for those like Mordecai, Jesus' pursuit of sinners was scandalous. It was audacious. You see, when we operate from a performance mindset where my standing is determined by my performance, my own moral purity how well I keep standards or live as a good person, so to say. When when we operate from that sort of performance mindset, grace becomes something scandalous, even offensive, because it disrupts that entire system. We feel like we've done what it takes to earn recognition, standing, blessing, goodness coming our way, And so we're scandalized and offended when folks who clearly don't deserve it receive favor and acceptance. That's not how the system is meant to work. But of course, when we think this way, we're failing to realize that in fact, none of us is deserving. All of us are debtors to God's grace. As Jesus, really the heartbeat of this passage, as he explains in giving this proverb to respond to the Pharisees. He says this in verse 7. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We get sort of two statements, one a proverb, and then one a more literal explanation. And there's parallels, sick, sinner, well, and righteous. A doctor does no good if all they ever do is hang around people who are perfectly healthy, right? For a doctor to be of any use, they have to meet with people who are sick. They have to encounter the sickness. That's what they've been trained to do, to deal with sickness. So what sense would it make for a doctor to keep themselves separated from those who are sick? And so likewise, Jesus, the Savior, has come not for those who are righteous, that is not that any of us actually are righteous, but those who would conceive of themselves as righteous and therefore not in need of saving. He doesn't save those people. He saves specifically those who are sinners and know they're sinners. That's his very mission as Savior. So of course he has come to call sinners and to embrace them. Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but for those who know they are sick. Jesus has come not to separate from sinners, but in pursuit of saving sinners. Mark has presented Jesus up into this point in his book as the authoritative king of God's inbreaking kingdom, right? Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. We've seen in passages before that he has authority. He has authority to, to, to heal. He has authority to cast out demons. He has authority to forgive sins. He is the king of God's kingdom. Now think about it. When a king arrives, who do they invite into their entourage? Who do people with authority often hang out with? The most important people. The most well-respected you don't invite people to follow you from the bottom of the barrel when you're the king, right? It, it, when a president is anointing their cabinet, for instance, anointing their cabinet members, they don't choose from among people who have committed treason against the state. They choose people who are loyal to them. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. He picks people who are treasonous against God's reign, he goes after the sinner. Jesus, in other words, is an unexpected king, as we're seeing. He doesn't operate by this world's standards. He doesn't operate the way we would expect him to or the way we would do thing, things. Jesus is the king who comes for sinners just like us. Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, those who consider themselves righteous, but for those who know that they are sinners sick with sin. And of course, this is a mission that he fully accomplishes by the end of the gospel by going to the cross. Not only pursuing sinners by calling them as his disciples, but ultimately pursuing them by taking on their sin sickness in his own death. The, 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 a parallel statement we get in the gospel of Mark is not only does he say, I have come for the sinners, but he says in Mark 10, 45, when he's explaining his death, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They're parallel. He comes for sinners, and the way he comes for sinners is by giving his life as a ransom for their sin. That's what we as Christians believe. That, 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 that's what the cross is, is Jesus bearing our sin sickness on himself to pay that penalty, 
to defeat the power of sin over us and ultimately to heal us by granting us forgiveness and granting us new life, specifically for all of those who then lean on him and trust in him for that rescue. And so as we come from, to a passage like this and we think, what does it look like for us to respond to this message? First, we can consider how this message hits us as the sinner how it hits us and gives us comfort as sinners. First thing we ought to do is to acknowledge that we're sick, to use the metaphor of this passage. None of us is, in fact, righteous and well. We are all the sick ones in this passage. So the question is, do you consider yourself to be sick? Or do you think that you are well? Maybe this passage is actually confronting you today. Like maybe you thought, I thought I was kind of good. I thought I was fine. For Jesus to speak in these terms of a physician assumes that I needed a physician. It assumes I, it assumes I have a problem. We like to pretend that we are well and fine and all together. In fact, it's quite common today in our own society to actually label our sin as health. We take what is sin and we actually say, oh, that's healthy, being true to yourself and, and sort of embracing your sin. But Jesus is of no aid to the person who thinks that they are well. If someone starts showing symptoms of a disease or some sort of illness, they don't know what's wrong, but they start seeing symptoms in them, we would want them to go to the doctor and get that sorted out. But the person who denies that they have anything wrong with them they're in denial, they're never going to go to the doctor. And if they never go to the doctor, they are likely never going to get help. The first step in healing then is to recognize that you need it. And it's not mean for the doctor to tell us that we have something wrong with us, as, may as, we, as much as we may not like the news, but it's actually a kindness to expose what is true, to expose that need so that he can meet it. J.C. Ryle, a uh, 19th century Puritan, said this, about this passage, he said, to sense our corruption and abhor our transgressions is the first symptom of spiritual health. To sense our corruption, to abhor our transgressions, that's the first, first sign of spiritual health. Happy indeed are those who have found out their soul's disease, right? Happy are those, blessed are those who have recognized their soul's disease because now they can actually turn to Christ. For those here then who know they are sick with sin, know that Jesus welcomes us as the perfect physician. We're not left there. If you're here today and you are deeply aware that you are sick with sin, know that your sin is not a barrier to coming to Christ. If anything, it makes you all the more eligible for Christ because you are this very person that he has come for. Christianity is not for those who have it all together. The message of Christianity, then, is not one of self-improvement. Jesus isn't just some moral teacher who teaches us how to clean up our lives. You're sick, but figure it out, become better. No, Jesus describes himself how? As a physician. The gospel isn't a command to make ourselves better, but a promise that he heals sin. So put your trust in him. Second, I think this helps us think about uh, how we view the church. Sometimes folks will complain 
um, sometimes grounded in, in truth, but they'll complain that the church is full of sin. It's messed up. Lots of sinners in it. To which we say, well, yes, and that's why you'll fit right in. The church is not, as some people have said, the church is not a museum of the saints or the museum of the righteous, but it is a hospital for sinners. And I'll just ride on that metaphor furthermore. As we are the sin-sick sinners and Jesus is a physician, the church then we could say is like the hospital for those sinners. It should be a slogan of Crossway that at Crossway, no perfect people are allowed. It's okay not to be okay, as we say. I know it's cliche, but it's true. It is okay not to be okay. You don't have to put on a front or pretend that you have it all together. Our church should have a culture in which we are open and we are honest about our sin. And if you're like me, that makes you uncomfortable. Like, I don't like having my sin pointed out. I don't like having my failings noticed. It's humbling, right? Because we're prideful. We like to be right. We like to be right in our own sight, and we like to be right in other people's sight. But the gospel enables us to be honest with our sin. The gospel already exposes us as sinners. We can confess to no sin or failing that says anything more than what the gospel has already said about us, that we are utter sinners. In fact, the gospel knows our sin more than we know our sin. We can't go beyond what it already says, what has already been said to be true of us. But the gospel also grants us full and secure forgiveness for those sins. So if we are believers, there's also no sin or failing that we can admit to that the gospel hasn't already declared forgiven, paid for, and dealt with forever. That means that we are no longer enslaved to the tyranny of needing to establish our own righteousness in our sight or in front of other people, in front of our fellow church members. That we are liberated and free to be honest about our sin and seek healing in Jesus with his people. And thirdly, Christ also doesn't leave us in our sin. His grace is healing. Not only does he welcome the sinner, but the passage also describes him as a physician. And physicians are those who heal sickness. And so his grace that welcomes us is also a transforming grace. As Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, he talks to the Ephesians how they need to put off the, the behaviors that characterize, there's a sin that characterizes their former manner of life. He says, because that's not the way you learned Christ. Christ means the forgiveness of sin, but also the liberation from sin. In John 8, in that passage where we have Jesus talking to the woman caught in adultery, he says to her, go and sin no more. And so the same physician that comes to seek us is also a physician that heals us and changes us. So that's the first category, how we hear this message as we ourselves are sinners, as the I think of the hymn, Come ye sinners, we should come as sinners to the grace that God offers us. But the second category of application, we might say, is how we then approach other sinners. How this passage confronts us 
and challenges us as how we approach other sinners. And here, if the first category was more, what does it look like for us to be in the position of a Levi? Here we might say, what does it look like for us to be in the position of the Pharisee who judges, who has self-righteousness? And so first, we should have a posture of humility. As we consider our posture to our surrounding society, um, is our posture one of humility? I think especially as our society becomes increasingly post-Christian and there may be folks in our mind who sort of represent, and maybe we don't even need to, to identify who they are out loud, but if you think in your, in your own mind, there are likely people in our society that in your mind represent sort of the worst of our society. Or, 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 or significant depravity. How do you think about those people? How do you talk about those people? Do we look down our nose at them in some sort of self-righteous judgmentalism? Do we talk about folks in, who are in sin, admittedly, but do we talk about them with disdain and ridicule from a position of superiority, does our speech reflect our own indebtedness to grace, in other words? Rather, we recognize that we ourselves are sinners in need of grace. And so that should characterize our speech, that should characterize our posture to even our society. We should be dripping with grace. Our interactions should be dripping with grace. Like Paul, our theological reflex, just our, just our reflex, our instinct should be, as he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If there is anything good in me, it is only because Christ has produced it. Who am I to boast? Who am I to look down on someone else? A true sense of our indebtedness to grace eliminates pride. It eliminates animosity. It eliminates self-righteous judgmentalism. But rather, a sense of our indebtedness to grace will produce humility, gentleness, sympathy towards others. And I'll say too, like, as we are a church that teaches Calvinism, as Calvinists, we should be the most humble of people. If Calvinism is the view that most emphasizes God's grace, God's initiatory, intervening grace in the life of sinners, all the more how Calvinists ought not to be prideful people, which is unfortunately sometimes the case, ornery and prideful, and self-righteous. But a true Calvinism is a humble Calvinism because of how deeply you sense your indebtedness to grace. Right, so again, our interactions should be dripping with grace. Our interactions with our coworkers, our interactions in, in the public square, or as parents, if you're a parent here, how does, how does the way you parent point your kids not towards a self-righteousness, but an indebtedness to God's grace? Secondly, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, he said that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. And so I think um, one of the implications of this passage is that we see a model for our own mission in the mission of Jesus here. As he pursued those who are sick, so ought we. Do we pursue then those who are sick? Who do we keep company with? Are there certain people that we keep our distance from? 
Maybe like me, you start to feel some inner resistance to that thought, some hesitation kind of arising within right now. Because embracing and pursuing those who are quote-unquote sick, can, uh, it can mean sacrificing our comfortable, convenient Christianity. As a church, who are the sort of people that we attract to become a part of our church? Those who have their lives all put together, sort of this comfortable, convenient Christianity? Or are they the sinners of our society? the sick, those who are clearly broken? Are there any subtle, unspoken expectations about the sort of people that are welcome here? Of the sort of people that make up our church, that the, that the sort of people that our church is for? Is there any subtle expectation that our church is for the people who kind of like look a certain way, have their life together a certain way, things are neat and tidy, if that's not you, that maybe you don't fit in. We should strive to be a church where the most broken, the most unwanted, the most destitute, if anything, are the most welcome, or the most natural fits. They look at our church and, say, and they would say, yes, that place is for me. Those of us who are parents, we would want our kids to feel that they can turn to us in times of trouble. Right? Unfortunately, though, for many kids, their parents are probably the last people that they would turn to if they got themselves into trouble because they're afraid of how their parents would react. Those are the last people I'll turn to. And likewise, I'm afraid that for many, the church in America has gained a similar reputation, that we're actually the last place that someone would turn to when they're caught up in sin. And so we should make it our aim as a church, our own body, to gain a reputation in our community as being the first place that sinners would turn to. That we are a church that's known for being a place for broken people. And then lastly, I think a passage like this teaches us that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one is beyond the gospel's reach. We can sometimes feel that some people are too far gone. They're too sinful to come to Christ. Maybe you're tempted to feel this way about a child who has walked away from the faith, a sibling or maybe a friend, or maybe you're here today and that is what you even think about yourself, that I'm too far gone. But if Christ has come specifically for sinners who are sick with sin, then our sin, far from making us ineligible, makes us perfect candidates for this physician's healing. It is not those who are well who need a physician. No, it's, it, Christ says that he is actually in the business of healing sinners. Such are the very people that Christ has come to save. And the Lord's Supper is our weekly reminder that we are undeserving sinners who have been invited to Christ's banquet of salvation. Just as Jesus invited sinners to dine with him then, so he continues to invite sinners to dine with him today. And this meal represents our participation in Jesus' death. The, the, the bread and the cup 
emblems of his body and his blood given over for us in death. And by our partaking them, it is God communicating to us that that death is for you. You participate in that. You are united to Christ in his death. And so this meal represents our participation in his death. And Jesus is the host of the meal. He is the one who has instituted it and given it to us. And then he is the one who has extended the invitation to us. We do not come presumptuously crafting this meal as somehow a way of reassuring ourselves. But again, he has given it to us. It is his promise in visible form. And he has invited you, believer, to partake. We have been made partakers of Christ's salvation. And the Lord's Supper puts that on display for us every week.